Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. listeners out there, the next general surgery oral board exam is coming up and it's coming up quick in November. Now is the time to develop your study strategy. Let Behind the Knife help you out with our oral board audio review. Our review contains 92 scenarios covering 115 score core topics. The entire project contains more than 25 hours of content. Now each scenario includes two parts. The first part is a perfectly executed oral board scenario that mimics the real thing. Scenarios are five to seven minutes long and include a variety of tactics and styles. Now, if you are able to achieve this level of performance in your preparation, you are sure to pass the oral boards with flying colors. The second part includes high yield commentary that's added to each scenario. And this commentary includes tips and tricks to help you dominate the most challenging scenarios. In addition to practical, easy to understand teaching that covers the most confusing topics we face as general surgeons. We're proud to say we have received rave reviews and are happy to offer the audio review at a fraction of the price when you compare to Osler or Pass Machine. In fact, we designed the oral board review to replace these courses. Learn more by visiting BehindTheKnife.org and clicking on the premium tab. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another surgical palliative care edition of Behind the Knife. My name is Red Hoffman, and I'm an acute care surgeon at Mission Hospital in Asheville, North Carolina, and one of about 90 surgeons currently board certified in hospice and palliative medicine. I'm the founder and host of the Surgical Palliative Care Podcast and the co-founder of the recently launched Surgical Palliative Care Society. I'd like to reintroduce you to my co-hosts, Dr. Zara Cooper and Dr. Amanda Stasny. Since we last met with Zara, she was promoted to full professor at Harvard Medical School. Congrats, Zara. I'm so happy for you. Thanks, Red. That's really kind of you. I really appreciate it. And Amanda Stasny is now a PGY3 at the Mayhek General Surgery Program in Asheville. Good to talk to you, Amanda. Yeah, good to talk to you, Red, and thanks, Zara. So today will be our second palliative care journal club. We're going to focus on advanced care planning, serious illness conversations, and perioperative decision-making. This is actually a very nuanced discussion that could take hours, so please make sure to check out the show notes for links to several articles and podcasts about these subjects. We'll start by discussing the 2018 article entitled Integrating Advanced Care Planning Videos into Surgical Oncologic Care, a Randomized Clinical Trial. Amanda, can you tell us a little bit about this trial? I'd love to. Um, This was a randomized controlled trial that took place at one academic tertiary care hospital. There were 92 patients that were undergoing major cancer surgery, and they were enrolled from nine surgical clinics with 45 patients in the arm that received the intervention and 47 in the control. Um, The intervention arm patients viewed a six-minute advanced care planning video That was developed through interviews with surgeons, palliative care, and advanced care planning experts. Throughout the video, patients, families, and physicians specifically recommended advanced care planning multiple times, and this included the importance of identifying a surrogate decision maker, while the control arm watched a six-minute video about the Johns Hopkins surgery program. Zara, do you have any comments about the video? 
Yeah, thanks for thanks for asking, Red. And I think this is a really cool study. And it builds on work that was previously done by a group called ACP Decisions, led by uh, Angela Valendez and Aretha Delight Davis. And they have a lot of experience making advanced care planning videos for various uh, serious illness populations um, and have been very successful in randomized control trials and in pragmatic trials in, in demonstrating um, some efficacy of the videos and um, improving the patient experience and uh, improving communication. That being said, this was the first venture into surgery and uh, the video was perhaps less explicit than other videos, other videos around advanced care planning and around serious illness decision-making, you know, showed patients having CPR, showed various procedures. Um, This video was a little less invasive than that. Uh, And so, you know, it's not necessarily clear what the results would have been had the videos looked like the videos that were produced for other settings. Thanks for giving us that historical perspective. I do think one of the things I appreciated about this video is that it stresses the importance of identifying a surrogate decision maker. You know, we'll talk about this a little bit, but I know while there are multiple problems inherent in advanced care planning, I've always felt that identifying the person who will speak on your behalf and who will really be able to verbalize and honor your wishes when you are no longer able to do so is probably one of the most important healthcare decisions that all of us, including our patients, are going to make. So Amanda, do you want to tell us a little more about the study? So the study had two primary outcomes, um, one being the advanced care planning content and communication between patients and their surgeons, and the second being a measurement of patient-to-provider centeredness, which was a ratio of the statements that reflect the psychosocial and socio-emotional elements compared with the biomedical and disease-focused elements. Um, A value greater than one indicated a more patient-centered encounter. There were no significant differences between the intervention and control groups as far as demographics, including things like age, sex, race, and primary diagnoses. Um, The most common diagnoses being pancreatic cancer and hepatobiliary and other GI cancers. There was no harm noted either in either of the arms. And this was kind of surprising to me, honestly, that ultimately there were no differences in discussion of ACP content between the intervention and the control groups. Surgeons and participants in the intervention group were more likely to discuss surrogate decision makers, though, and there were also no noticeable differences in patient-centeredness between the two groups. So one of the things that I found interesting, which kind of harkens back to what Zara said, is that the researchers spent two years developing this video and really involved multiple stakeholders in the process. And in the discussion, the authors note that during the video development, the majority of patients and family members advocated for a longer video or what the researchers call a stronger dose of advanced care planning than was felt acceptable by many of the surgical oncologists. And it was difficult for me to suss out whether this was because the surgeons were uncomfortable with the idea of advanced care planning whether it was because they wanted to be more in control of the discussion and conversation, or whether it was simply because they were more mindful of the time that the patients were spending in clinic. And 
The authors also note that in light of the study results, one could argue that perhaps the advanced care planning dose should have been discussed more than once as evidence suggests that increased frequency of these conversations actually improves effectiveness. Any other thoughts from you on this, Zara? Yeah, right. I love the way that you talk about the dose response curve in this because I think it's really important. There, there are a couple of issues, and I wonder, actually, if we were to develop this video today, how different it might be, given how much more nuanced our understanding is of advanced care planning and, and surgery and uh, the geriatric surgery verification program uh, includes standards around advanced care planning, surrogate decision maker designation, and those kinds of things. And so... I I do wonder if surgery has caught up a little bit more and so that the dose might have actually been a little stronger, if not more frequent. I do think that one of the things to keep in mind, um, and and this was information that I have from conversations with the investigators, was that surgeons were very worried about the amount of time spent uh, on the videos and were also worried about frightening patients. And And I do think that here we get into discussion about the surgical covenant and you know a surgeon's responsibility. And I think if we look at the other seriously ill populations where these videos have you know demonstrated some efficacy, your cardiologist didn't give you heart failure, right? Um, but you know if you're talking to somebody who's sitting in your office, even if they already have multimorbidity and serious illness, presumably you've you've determined that they're fit enough for surgery, and now you're talking about what if things go wrong and what if they're no longer as fit. So I do think we have to be mindful of the differences between how these videos and how these discussions need to happen in surgery versus other fields. I think we also have to be mindful how much of this is about our own fear um, versus right. you know what the patients want, what they need, and what they can tolerate. And I think it brings up an interesting point because we've talked about this before, the value of surgeons doing their own primary palliative care, which I can see surgeons, I mean, I as a surgeon want to be a a little more in control of of the conversation. And and I think I'm probably more skillful at talking about what of the risks of the surgery look like and what's an expected outcome from a Whipple. We know it may be, say, a rocky road for you. However, surgeons have to be willing to do that. I would say I would like them to be either willing to use these videos or willing to engage in that discussion. Like somehow this conversation needs to be happening. You know, Red, I would agree that the conversation needs to happen. I I might think more broadly about the interdisciplinary team. I, I feel like as somebody who's trained in hospice and palliative medicine, probably one of the most important lessons that I learned from my training was that, you know, this kind of concept that we have in surgery, that you're the captain of the ship and you're doing everything by yourself is really antiquated and that we really need to draw upon the skills and the expertise of our entire clinical team. And so there are opportunities to engage social workers, chaplains, nurses, you know, physician extenders in some of these conversations so that the surgeon doesn't have to do it all. And in some cases, I do wonder if that's just better, you know, if, if, if introducing these conversations from the surgeon themselves can put stress on the surgeon-patient relationship that isn't, ne- that isn't necessary. One thing that I, I did want to discuss a little bit was the 
I don't want to say the difference, but kind of qualities of advanced care planning versus serious illness communication. I think this is really important because there's a great deal of controversy within the palliative care community about these two somewhat distinct approaches to care planning for the end of life or if you're unable to uh, speak for yourself. And, you know, there are leaders in the field of, of palliative care, notably Sean Morrison, Diane Meyer, Bob Arnold. I mean, these are, are some of the giants in our field who are saying, you know, advanced care planning hasn't been demonstrated to work. Um, but the advanced care planning that they're talking about is, again, kind of a relic of 20 years ago when we were talking about, you know, a, a living will. Um, that was a document that, you know, would say, I don't want ventilator, I don't want CPR, I don't want vasopressors, but, you know, and, and something that an individual would sign and that, you know, supposedly would go into the medical record. And, you know, there's been a whole host of studies that have shown that those forms without kind of the support of a Polster or most program, and but even when Polster most most are available, you know, are not necessarily trans transferred from location to location, that patients often change their mind, they're either too simple or the surrogate decision maker hasn't been involved. But what has been shown to improve the patient experience, to improve communication between patients and their surrogates, and also to, you know, reduce depression and improve self-efficacy uh, for, for patients and, and their family members is serious illness communication, which is along the lines of what I and others, including Gretchen Schwarzy, have proposed around really understanding kind of the goals and the values that guide an individual patient's decisions for treatment uh, and understanding what they're willing to tolerate, what they're willing to go through, what trade-offs they're willing to make, and, and really understanding how these various treatments fit into the context of their desires for, for their quality of life. And, and so what, what I would hate to happen is that, you know, this debate confuses um, surgeons in particular, um, because I do think, as, as you point out, Red, that, you know, these conversations about patients' goals and values are, are really critically important, particularly for seriously ill patients and older adults who are at higher risk of surgery. Um, and a higher risk of, of adverse outcomes that may interfere with their quality of life, uh, it's really important that we have an understanding so that we can take the best possible care of them. How would you define advanced care planning versus serious illness communication? Let me clarify. I mean, I think advanced care planning, as defined by the leaders in the field who are saying that it hasn't shown uh, favorable results in scientific studies, is really this, as I said, this antiquated kind of view of it as a document, as a living document that is supposed to go in the medical record. Um, and that, you know, it hasn't been shown to improve goal concordance of care. Although one of the major challenges in our field is that we don't actually have great measures for that. So, you know, it, it hasn't been measured well. Whereas serious illness communication um, and examples, I think, would include the serious illness communication um, program and the serious illness communication guide. I think examples might also include some of the vital talk uh, pedagogical approaches. Um, but largely, it's really an exploration, a deeper exploration of patients' goals and values for, you know, longer and shorter term care planning. Um, and it's not necessarily about, you know, which specific medical treatments would you or would you not want? It's, you know, what is the framework, the psychological, social, 
um, spiritual framework that you as an individual might be using to make these decisions so that we can understand how we can approach medical decision making together. Is that helpful? Yeah, I think another thing when I was reading about this recently was I kind of came away with it that the serious illness communication, and I'll link to this article that was entitled Shifting to Serious Illness Communication, that was a JAMA Viewpoint article a couple months ago, a focus somewhat on prognosis, whether it was a time prognosis versus a functional prognosis, it, it didn't really matter, but that this communication was somewhat contextual. And whereas when we're talking about advanced care planning, a lot of times it's done in like somewhat younger, and I'm even saying like 60 or 70 healthy individuals. But then when you're 90 years old and in the ICU on a ventilator, it's like a different story. It's almost like this document that you put away or is at the lawyer's office and no one's looked at in years versus having these discussions in the context of prognosis and these deep discussions about values in the moment. And one of the things I also liked, there was a recent Jerry Powell podcast that I'll link to as well, that talked about that there's really, sometimes when we do advanced care planning, we get very goal oriented, like I have to fill out this DNR form or this post or most form or really some when we're talking about illness and communication, it's really just a, a discussion. And we may get some definitions around values or what's important to you. Or, you know, the discussion at the end might be, let's just meet again in two days, more like what we do in the ICU, just this ongoing conversation. Yeah, right. I really like that, that description of it. And and I think that's right. And I do think that serious illness communication can happen in a pre-emergent um, an acute setting. And, you know, certainly you and I as acute care surgeons tend to do it more frequently in the acute setting, but it's, it's certainly, and, and that in the moment decision-making, you know, we have referred to it in surgery previously as advanced care planning, but, but it isn't really. So I realized for the audience, we're getting in, in the weeds a little bit about this. And so again, I'll link to some articles because I, I think some of these topics are things that as all of our patients get older and more medically complex, that a lot of us are really going to be called upon to think about. Um, I think we can move now to our second paper, which I wanted to discuss, which is entitled A Multidisciplinary High-Risk Surgery Committee May Improve Perioperative Decision-Making for Patients and Physicians. So Amanda, can you tell us a little bit about this study? So this was a retrospective review of 76 patients who were presented to a multidisciplinary committee at a VA hospital over a period of three years from 2016 to 2019. Um, all of these patients had a VA surgical quality improvement program risk calculator that found a mortality risk of greater than 5%, and both 30-day and one-year mortality were measured. And I thought one of the strengths of this study was that patients included candidates for cardiac, thoracic, vascular, neurosurgical, general, and neurologic procedures. And that another strength of this study was that the committee was truly multidisciplinary, and it was made up of providers from all phases of perioperative care, including surgery, anesthesiology, critical care, palliative care, geriatrics, ethics, and hospital medicine. Can you tell us a little bit about the results, Amanda? So of the 76 patients reviewed by the committee, the preoperative average 30-day mortality risk for the group was 14.2%. And after review, 57% of the patients had a change in care plan. 
Um, 71 of these patients went on to surgery with 7.4 of those or 7.4% of those dying within 30 days, as opposed to the estimated 14.2%. Of the 27.6 patients that did not proceed with surgery after presentation to the committee, eight of these patients or eight patients were discharged to hospice. Usually I feel like palliative care is not involved until a patient is like super sick or you know that they have a super high chance of morbidity or mortality. And I just thought it was interesting that they picked a mortality rate of 5% or a risk of 5%. So, I I mean, I'm sure it included a lot of people that wouldn't have necessarily even had any kind of palliative discussion. Yeah, I think this shows the one, the value of upstream palliative care. And I I wanted to get your thoughts on this paper, Zara, because one of the things that I thought was really interesting was that the 30-day mortality was about half of what was estimated. And they, they really didn't truly were able to say in the paper that this was because the care plans changed in some of these patients. But I guess that's what I was assuming that some of the care plan had to do with the patients not undergoing surgery. Exactly. Uh, You know, I love this paper and I'm so grateful um, to Tom Robinson and his team for publishing it. The findings of this paper echo another study that was done uh, at the Nebraska VA. And I can't remember who the first author was, but I remember Jason Johanning and um, Dan Hall were uh, among the authors on that paper And what they showed was that frailty screening and then palliative care referral for patients who were frail also reduced mortality, again, because of better patient selection. You know, one of the the key things I think we have to keep in mind, and I think this is really particularly true for our palliative care colleagues who, you know, read Nometa, you may know, are often reticent to engage with surgeons because they're afraid to tell us that that we shouldn't operate on our patient and how we'll respond to that. But, you know, I don't want to operate on somebody who I know is going to do badly. And I certainly don't want to operate on somebody who doesn't really want an operation. And so, you know, I, I think that this particular study illustrates a number of really important points. One, again, is the importance of interdisciplinary care. And two, as you mentioned, the importance of, of upstream palliative care. I, I do also wonder when we think about the multidisciplinary fora, how, you know, again, what's the dose response there? You know, how many of those particular specialists were, were necessary to, to make a difference and, and who were kind of the, the key players um, and, and what was the frequency of these meetings? I will say also that I love this paper and it's made me bang my head against a wall trying to implement this locally. Uh, First of all, I think one of the things that this illustrates in my mind anyway is how frustrating it is that some of these things we even need data on. I mean, this just makes sense. That you have a complex patient, that there should be a discussion among, you know, among um, different sets of specialists who can share their own perspectives, right? I mean, that, that's just logical. Um, but then the other thing about this is that the the feedback I've had as I've tried to implement something like this at Brigham Women's where I practice is, you know, well, that's at the VA and, you know, they only operate until three o'clock and, you know, it's just a totally different um workflow. What I say is, given these results, it means that we have to figure out how to do it. (laughs) You know, saying, well, that's the VA. I mean, the VA takes care of some of the sickest, most indigent patients um, in our healthcare system. And if they can do it, then we need to be able to figure it out. So 
Um, you know, I actually have taken it on as a challenge to try to figure out how to do this. And again, the geriatric standards verification program through the American College of Surgeons also has a standard around this type of discussion. And so I hope that it will become more prevalent. I mean, to me, this is really reminiscent of tumor board that somehow people managed to make that work. Or when you think of the transplant committee, people managed to make that work. I wonder like how it feels to a patient when they're going to see their surgeon and you have to tell them like we talked about you at our multidisciplinary conference and we feel that it wouldn't be best to proceed with surgery just to hear that like all of these people don't think this is best for them. I, I just wonder how that goes over. What's your thoughts on that, Zara? So, I mean, there are a couple of things, and I think part of it is the way you frame it. I mean, if I knew that there was a team of 10 different types of surgeons and clinicians thinking about me, and they came up with a recommendation and could explain to me the rationale behind their recommendation, I would feel like I was getting great care. You know, that is part of the reason why patients go to cancer centers so that they can have this type of, you know, multidisciplinary care from experts in in their fields. I imagine it feels terrible, but that's not a reason not to do it. I think it also makes a really important argument for, again, you know, we need to stop thinking, and I'm not saying this is what you were saying, Amanda, but we need to stop thinking of not doing surgery as doing nothing. What are the alternatives to treatment for that individual? And how are we going to manage their symptoms? And how are we going to continue to walk through that illness journey with them and not make them feel abandoned? And I think that that second part of the conversation probably has a lot to do with how it's perceived and understood by patients and their families. If it's part of a multidisciplinary team where we're saying that we're not going to offer surgery, but we're offering this, this, and this, probably including some good palliative care, then I think it will be met in a more positive way. But it reminds me of even when we're saying that, you know, in our emergency general surgery patients, when the patient is so moribund, we're not offering surgery, you know, we're never saying there's nothing I can do for you. Surgery is not the best option at this point in time, but I'm still here to walk with you through these next steps, even if it means I'm walking with you through the end of life, which I feel like, you know, a lot, I think more and more surgeons are becoming comfortable with. And if they're not, then just making sure that they're hooked in with a good palliative care team. Zara, any other thoughts as we're wrapping up? No, I just, um, you know, I'm just really privileged and, and grateful for the opportunity to speak with both of you and to, um, you know, share this on Behind the Knife. It's just such a wonderful kind of commentary on where we are in surgical palliative care. And I'm excited to have more conversations because I think as our patients get older and sicker, there's just more and more of a need for all surgeons to have this in our toolbox. And like I've said so many times, I always love to remind people that you do not have to be fellowship trained to do this great work. And I think there's so many opportunities now for all surgical trainees and for surgeons who are in practice to learn more about primary palliative care, which I feel like is well within the toolbox of the vast majority, if not all of the surgeons practicing today. Red, if I, if I could, 
there's an analogy that I use that I think might be helpful here. And, and people who've heard me speak have heard me talk about this. But, you know, as a surgical intensivist and as a general surgeon, you know, I know how to manage atrial fibrillation. So if a patient goes into rapid atrial fibrillation, I know to give them a beta blocker, a calcium channel blocker. If they're dropping their pressure, I would know how to shock. If they're not necessarily dropping their pressure, but the pressure isn't great, I would know to put them on amio um, or amiodarone. Um, and I would know how to dose that and to provide it as a drip. And, and that's kind of within my armamentarium of things that I know how to take medical care of my surgical patients. When it goes beyond that, I need a cardiologist. I need a cardiology consult. And I think about palliative care in very much the same way, that there are certain things that just as a surgeon, I need to have an understanding of, kind of basic symptom management, goals of care conversations, and, and when to call in backup from an interdisciplinary team. Um, and then there are more complex conflict-ridden cases where I think a, a subspecialty um, consult can be extraordinarily helpful. So uh, I totally agree with you about the primary palliative care piece. And, and I do wish that we as a field would, would start recognizing what the differences are between them. Thanks everyone for listening to another episode of Surgical Palliative Care on Behind the Knife. If you're interested in learning more about surgical palliative care, Please know that the first meeting of the Surgical Palliative Care Society will be taking place on October 18th at 3 p.m. in San Diego. We invite you all to visit the website www.spcsociety.org to learn more about this meeting and to learn more about surgical palliative care. Thank you, Behind the Knife, for supporting us. Have a great day. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day. Dominate the day.